Welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms. Legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports here in Overcast with great New York City with the great Jamal Murphy. Good to be here as usual. Yes, that's what you always say. Are you? Is it really great to be here? It well? is, you know. I yeah. mean, where else would I rather be? Yeah. <laughs> California, maybe. California, maybe Bermuda. Um, and we're here with uh, uh, a very, 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 very good friend of mine, a former colleague, a great guy, outstanding writer. Uh, has just come up with a sensational book um, talking about the great... Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan Abrams, welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Hey, what's up? How you guys doing? Everything is good, man. Um, well, first of all, there's, there's a lot to get into, man. Uh, um, Jonathan Abrams just came out with his first book and hit a home run with his first book. It's called Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked a Basketball Revolution. Great man. What a great concept for a book. It's gotten great reviews. Uh, and first of all, man, I just got so I'm so proud of you, man. I remember when you first started on So congratulations, man. Really a great job, John. Uh, I really appreciate that, Bill. You know, especially coming from a from a person like you, somebody whose uh, career I looked up to and passed that uh, you know, anybody can look at and respect that that means a lot. Yeah, no, great job, man. I mean, this is really, really good. Let me ask you a question, man. How did you well first of all, let me just give your well, no, I'll get your bio. We'll tell everybody how great you are later. But how did you come up with the idea of this, man? I know you, you covered the NBA. Um, well, we might as well get this out of the way now. I mean, uh, you, 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 uh, we were colleagues at the New York Times where you covered uh, the NBA. Before that, you were with the L.A. Times. Then you uh, escaped from the New York Times to work with uh, Grantland. And now you're just beginning uh, what promised to be at another sensational event at Bleacher Report. Uh, but what what happened? I mean, how did you come up with this idea for uh, Boys Among Men? Yeah, I think a, a few factors went into it. Uh, you know, I looked at my own career where I was pretty young when I started out covering the Clippers for the, for the L.A. Times, and, you know, I was 24 at that time, and I wasn't really ready for, for that position. So I thought about, man, look at these, these guys who are even younger than I am, you know, in the league, having to be the financial uh, bear holders for their for their families, having to perform under all this pressure, and to me, it was amazing that it didn't it didn't break more people. And uh, you know, I've grown up a basketball fan, and you know, I followed these guys making this jump from from high school to the NBA in real time. I remember my senior year of high school was the same senior year as Kwame Brown and mm. Tyson Chandler and Eddie Curry, and you know, I remember thinking even back then man, this is a lot of pressure, a lot of expectations on, on these guys, and I'm not ready to go to college yet. How are these guys going to perform <laughs> under the weight of all this? And I remember the you know, the proclamations that Eddie Curry was supposed to be the next Shaquille O'Neal and right. Tyson Chandler was the next Kevin Garnett. Mm. And You look at it a, more than a decade later and just the expectations fell pretty pretty short of those, uh, of those I think, unrealistic uh, goals at the, at the very beginning. You know, uh, I think potential is a is a dangerous thing where it's a lot of expectations and burdens set by other people, and if you're not ready to be to to be that person or or meet those those goals, you can get squashed under under the weight of that. And that all made me think. You know, the other thing was that at Grantland, I had done some profiles and features on guys who had made the jump, and it just always seemed like the guys who had made the jump, even if you someone like Gerald Green, who's had a pretty pretty average NBA career, it took a lot just to get to that stability hmm. you know he was a guy who had to go play in uh in siberia hmm. <laughs> before he was mature enough to play in the nba so i think it was that all combined just kind of struck me at once like man it's it's a good time to look back at these guys hmm. um you, you, but you know you mentioned you being 24 i guess it's different though because yeah you know, i mean we all at some point were 24 writing or something but i guess it's it's a lot different being a 24-year year old journalist, you know, in in in, in, a, in, a, in a in an environment where in our business and in you know 
in academics and those kind of things, you grow. As you get older, you grow, you mature. You know, it's not based on the body, in other words, right? It's not based necessarily on your body. You, you're 24, then when you're 25, you get wiser. And maybe when you're 65, the way it goes, there, there's, there's room for, you know, there's room for intellectual growth. Mm-hmm. Where in the NBA or, or in any physical sport, 24, and then by the time you're, what, 30, it's over. Right, you have a set, you have a set time in which you have to perform, right. unlike, you know, if you're a writer. Right, right. That, I mean, that's at least what I would argue. <laughs> but, but um, so, but, but, you know, you mentioned some people, John. You mentioned uh, Kwame Brown, Eddie Curry, Tyson Chandler. And I guess why did this, how did this stuff start? I mean, whose idea was it? You know, I, I forgot who the very first one. I know you, you start your book off with Moses Malone. But, he, I mean, you know, we, we didn't mention Bill Willoughby. How did this stuff start? Did some GM, was it just such a, an incredible manhunt that people were just desperate for, 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 for young talent. I mean, who who started this stuff? I mean, that's that's the thing. It always takes a, a person to think outside the box to kind of move sports or almost anything in life in a in a different direction. So what happened was that uh, his name was Bucky Buckwalter. Oh, yeah, he was the yeah. GM of the Utah Stars and the ABA. He actually just basically stumbled across Moses Malone playing in a in a high school all-star game and you know he basically said I, I gotta get this guy mm-hmm. and back then it was like you know it was like the wild wild west I mean <laughs> right. Moses was missing weeks of school at a time to go on recruiting visits and he had coaches sleeping outside his doors offering him money his family money uh it was it was a lot different atmosphere than it is now even though a lot of that stuff could kind of swept yeah. under the rug uh yeah. in today's athletic world but uh yeah i mean bucky buckwalter and moses malone basically opened up the door and then uh daryl dawkins and bill willoughby went to the nba a year later and then it was basically shut for for two decades until kevin garnett kind of reopened that path for high school guys to make the jump so why did it get shut down right it's it's interesting because you know sports leagues the executives are going to follow success and where success leads so you look, Moses Malone, he was like the, the big type of success. But even then, people weren't completely sure because Moses was kind of a quiet, aloof guy, and it was still really early in his career. Then you had Daryl Dawkins, who had all this ability in the world, but he was also, you know, like a big man-child. He was immature. He was a guy who would never completely reach his potential. And then Bill Willoughby just, you know, wasn't ready for that type of lifestyle or that type of competition at all. So I think the rest of the league saw that it was more of a risk than a, a reward type of situation. And, you know, even back then, the NBA obviously wasn't the NBA of today. You know, going to college was seen as a good thing. You, you made your name in college. You know? <laughs> right. So, yeah, so, so what changed? Because obviously in 1995 when Kevin Garnett came out, it's, it was still a risk. It's still a huge risk. What do you think changed as far as the NBA executives were concerned? Well, there's a few factors. Um, you know, players were willing to make that jump uh, back then a lot more because big money had been introduced into the NBA. We had talked about that finite life of an athlete at the beginning of the conversation, and that was a big thing as well. I mean, you want to get that money as soon as you can, as fast as you can, and for as long as you can. And that extra year, or year, extra year, two years, three years, it, it counts, and it counts a lot. And uh, shoe companies were willing to pay guys to to make the jump. Tracy McGrady made $12 million from Adidas before he had even played an NBA game, and that opened up a lot of eyes. And then the other factor in it is after guys like KG and Kobe became successful, teams couldn't miss fire on drafting these guys. They couldn't miss drafting the next KG, Mm. so it swung the other way. You know, the best example is that in 95, uh, the Washington Bullets had the fourth overall pick, and John Nash, uh, their GM at the time, liked KG, but their owner, uh, Abe Poland, said, no, I'm not taking a high school player. I don't, ha- I don't care how good you think he is. Then you fast forward five years later to 2001, and uh, the same owner, same franchise, they're just now the Wizards instead of the Bullets, a different GM, obviously, and uh, Michael Jordan, the guy who's making the decisions, but you know the same owner, Greenlight's taking Kwame Brown with the first overall decision. <laughs> Brown. He, should, he should have stuck to his guns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Kwame Brown still stands as sort of like the poster boy for just a disaster, right? You know, but but when you when you think about Kwame Brown, it's interesting because he did have a you know pretty I would say a pretty lengthy 
NBA career. And I was wondering, you know, we always hear about the one and done successes, you know, Kobe, LeBron, uh, McGrady. But to me, you should take those guys out because those guys would have been good no matter what. They would have they would have succeeded no matter when they came out. I'm wondering how many of the of the guys who came out, you know, directly from high school or even the one and done guys make up the core of the NBA, which is the the role player uh, or the journeyman. Yeah, and I think you know there's a good whole category of guys who jump from from high school who fall into that category. I mean, there's far more. I guess average NBA players and superstars and guys who who wore busts. I think that's a big uh, misnomer, mm-hmm. and I think it all depends on how we look at a guy like Kwame and his career. Because right, if he had right. gone to Florida for for one year, that he would have been a, a late lottery pick. If he would have had the same career, we would be viewing him as a as a success story. I mean, he played a dozen years. He made sixty something million dollars, right. and he found his niche right. in the NBA as kind of a defensive force off the. Off the bench with with very bad hands, uh, <laughs> but there's a whole a whole category of guys like Al Harrington and Monte right. Ellis, Rashard Lewis. I mean, I could go on and on of guys who just had very successful uh, careers by just about any standard, even if they weren't that that star that they were predicted when they first jumped out of uh, high school. Give give me some more names. You mentioned you mentioned because uh, I forgot uh, Rashard Lewis. I forgot about him. Who else? You you mentioned uh, yeah, Lou Williams. Right. That's right. Uh, a good, really good career. Sean Livingston. Right. Oh uh, man, who's killer? Smith, Al Jefferson. Right. Right. I mean, there's there's a lot of guys who weren't superstars, but are you know very probably I would say above average NBA players. Mm. Uh, has has let me ask you this? Has I, I'm looking at the list of people. I remember even when when you were working on this, we were talking about you know just the process of it. You must have had some tremendous interviews. I mean, you talked to Moses. I remember that. I mean, you talked to Moses, man. You must have been one of the last. I mean, just how blessed was that, man? You were really probably one of the last people to talk to Moses for this type of project before he passed away. I I still can't believe that he's gone. Him and uh, and Daryl Dawkins. Um, That's right. Dawkins, too. Right. The the timing was just uh, really unfortunate. And I. You know, I was too late in the process by the time they passed. I would have rather, you know, gotten more of their stuff into it after after they had passed, but uh, it was too late in the process to kind of redo a lot of the book. What was it like? I mean, when you spoke, you you spoke to Moses, right? And you spoke to Dawkins. What was yeah. what was that like? What were those sessions like? It was it was good. And, you know, Moses, he was still a very humble person. Uh, and you think about a person who has won championships and won three league MVPs and all the rest of them, every single guy, you know, I think there's only a handful of guys who have done what he, what he did, their household names. But he was kind of a guy who was uh, really quiet and aloof, didn't do a lot of commercials, didn't do a lot of endorsements. But he, he was smart kind of below the surface. And I think that carried him well and that allowed him to make the transition because he was a guy who went from a he went from Virginia to, to Salt Lake City <laughs> as a rookie, you know, having not experienced much in life. And uh, to be able to make that transition and make it seamlessly, uh, for the most part, I mean, his uh, coaches and teammates, I was able to talk to them on that Utah Stars team, and they all had a lot of respect for him. And he just told me, you know, he, he I think his big thing was that when he was 13 or 14, he, he prayed that he could become a professional athlete. And when he had this opportunity, even if it was just out of high school, that he was going to take it. And it was going to be his decision and his decision alone. And whether he failed or succeeded, it was going to be on his shoulders. So that was the type of attitude he had. And that was how I think he became successful in it. And then uh, Daryl, I mean, <laughs> I think Daryl Dawkins is almost like a guy like uh, he was Shaquille before Shaquille as far as being a funny guy and kind of uh, naming his dunks and <laughs> – Viewing yeah. basketball as entertainment before being a, a hardcore sport with with competition where people make their livelihood. I mean, he saw it as a game and he played it as a game, and <laughs> you know he had fun doing it, and you can't blame him for that. How was how was your interview with Dawkins? Uh, how how similar were Dawkins and Moses in personality? Just from the outside, they seem like night and day. That uh, you know Moses very you know humble, laid back, and you know Daryl, you know just very out there and flamboyant um what was what was your interview session with him like yeah i mean night and day is how i would <laughs> would describe it <laughs> and i think their careers you know played out the same way 
even though both of them, you know, were on some pretty good 76ers teams. But, yeah, I mean, you know, that was the thing was that Moses viewed it as a job and mm. a job that he would get better at, and Daryl viewed it as a game. Mm. Yeah, I want to read something. You you, uh, you set up, uh, you opened the book with just a remarkable scene of Bucky Bo- <laughs> Buck, uh, Walter, uh, you know, climbing under a fence and almost getting bitten by a dog to walk up to Moses's home, a very humble home to give him this money. And I'll just read a quick passage. Said, <clears throat> Buck Walter had heard rumblings about the envelope stuffed with money that one of Moses' uncles requested just to let a recruiter meet with a teenager. Buck Walter, Buck, Buck Walter had to sneak under a fence and narrowly avoided the jaws of a dog simply to knock at their front door. Mary Malone answered the door. Buck Walter glanced at the scarce furnishings. Mary Malone had four pictures on her mantle, one each of Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King, John and Jackie Kennedy, and her son, Moses. Buck Walter knew that Moses Malone had heard every possible spiel. He discussed being a pioneer with Malone. Malone stared and mumbled. Buck Walter offered to build the family a new house. Quote, this is yours, Buck Walter said after he put the money on the crate. Quote, this is for you and your friends. This isn't like Maryland where you never really see anything, end quote. There was more, but that was just a great, I mean, it was just such a great scene. And, and, and what later, Moses called Lefty, right, and said, what should I do? And then and, and Lefty said, uh, what, what did he say? Call the police. Yeah. <laughs> and then we, and if he gives me a million, call me back. <laughs> yeah, Lefty was the the coach at Maryland who had finally uh, finally gotten uh, Moses to commit to the school after a lot of pleading and, and begging, and he wasn't about to lose him without a fight. That was for sure. That's right. My guest is Jonathan Abrams, uh, currently with the Bleacher Report. He's the author of Boys Among Men how the prep to pro generations redefined the NBA and sparked a basketball revolution. John, so has this, I mean, you now have a son, you know, has, has, I mean, obviously, you know, he's only like, what, two years old now? No, he's not, is he two years old yet? He is two. Two. So, I mean, clearly, by the time he's like 17 and, you know, getting ready to go to the pros, but has this, has this experience changed your view of either the one and done that Calipari has made famous. Uh, has it changed your view about who is ready for a pro career and whether the age limit should be raised or not? I mean, it's a, it's a tricky subject, right? It's not all black and white. There's a lot of, a lot of gray involved. Um, you know, I, when I interviewed David Stern for this book, David Stern was like, listen, the NBA is a business, and if I'm the New York Times, and if I want to have the best journalists working for me, shouldn't I hire a journalist who have a journalism degree from college? And, you know, when he talks about that, it, it makes sense. I just feel like there's also a societal responsibility or a social responsibility that the NBA has for this as well. You know, I, I don't know what's stopping. Well, I do know what's stopping. I, I would love to see a baseball-type rule where guys uh, are able to uh, come out of high school, so we're not holding guys like LeBron and Kobe back. And, you know, even this past year, someone like Ben Simmons, who have no business being in school. Uh, and then if guys go to school for two years or if guys decide to go to college, they stay for at least two years. And in that way, they'll be a lot, lot closer toward getting their college degree. Because right now, you can't even call it one and done. It's just, you know, four months and, and done. Basically, right. just eligible long enough to to be uh or you, you go to school long enough to be eligible and for the college season and and that's about it but uh you know the one and done rule it's it's not done with the players in mind at all it's done in mind for the executives so the executives can see these players against better competition who they're about to invest multi-million dollar contracts into and so that there's not another uh, pick like Kwame Brown who's the top overall pick when you should uh, go later in the lottery. So, I mean, it's it's for these teams to protect themselves. And, you know, I, I just think that the players should be protected as well. Do you, do you think the age limit should should be raised? No. I mean, I, I would want to see, like, a baseball-type rule and, and, you know, not have a, a raised age limit because their earning window is, is so small in their life. And, 
you know, they need to take advantage of it while they can. We, we, you know, we talked about it earlier on about, you know, some of the successes and failures and ha- and you were saying basically that there's been much more success than than we've been led to believe. So so do you th- overall do you you know how do you think it shakes out um from from the from the players who went directly uh to the NBA from high school compared to guys in college what do you think the difference is in terms of longevity? I, I mean I just guys who are able to to get to the NBA faster are able to adapt to the game faster because there's a, a lot to adapt to not just on the court but off the court and you know I do think that it helps lengthens their careers because they're able to, to acclimate themselves quicker and faster and they're able to just dedicate themselves and focus themselves to the game instead of uh, uh, some biology class that they're never going to uh, need again in their lives um, you know I, I don't know what the exact numbers are but you know I would expect that Kobe's career was lengthened. I would expect right. KG's career was lengthened right. uh, by careers. coming out of yeah. high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what What do you think um, for the guys who failed? Whose Whose fault was it that 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 they failed? Uh, was it Was it uh, Was it the NBA's fault? Was it the college's fault? Was it the I mean, my my whole theory basically is that you every you have to begin with yourself. You got to look yourself in the mirror first. But what do you think in terms of the interviews you conducted and and you know you immersed yourself in this for a couple of years? So for the guys who failed, whose fault was it? I mean, I, I agree that it starts with yourself, and I don't want to provide any type of excuses. The the problem in saying that though is that you know these guys at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years old had grown men, grown people fawning over them and, you know, left and right and and providing for them and telling them that they're the greatest and they're going to be like Michael Jordan and they're on their path to to greatness. So, you know, one day when that disappears and they're left with nothing, you know, I I think I would have probably fallen into that trap if if I was exposed to that at at that age. And, you know, I just, it has to start with some type of individual responsibility but at the same time, you know, it's the shoe companies, it's the, it's the, it's the NBA, it's their, it's their coaches. And, you know, I think my problem is is that there's a lot of people who are willing to accept responsibility for a guy like Kobe or, or KG. But when a guy falls short of those expectations, like Corleone Young or, or mm. Lenny Cook or Leon Smith, there's, there's nobody really there to step in and accept culpability. So what's the difference with this? As as we're talking, you know, Jamal and I have been covering hockey now, you know, um, and, and but a lot of these guys, I mean, these sports are like high school caliber sports. I mean, I know a lot of hockey guys uh, come right from high school, that high school age, and go to, to hockey. Uh, a, a significant number of baseball players go right from high school uh, into the pro ranks. What's the difference um, you know, between the the, the these guys we're talking about in the NBA going right into a pro environment. Well, I mean, I think the, the obvious, probably the obvious biggest one is that you know, hockey and baseball have true minor league systems where I don't think the majority of guys who get drafted in the NHL or, or Major League Baseball go directly to the pros. They have a whole system in place for them to matriculate themselves uh, mm-hmm. through a process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, basketball the the d league isn't a true minor league system it leaves a lot to be wanting for and you know d league players can't even really make salaries to sustain themselves that's Mm. why so many guys instead opt to go play in europe wow so so really that's interesting because you know i guess that's it was designed stern had in his mind to have a kind of minor league system that wasn't the ncaa because essentially the ncaa is that default minor league system without without any pay Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And, yeah, we're still a long way from getting there with the D-League, although, you know, it has improved in recent years. I just, you know, it would be nice to see rosters increase beyond 15 to, say, like 18 or so, where you can have, you know, some players in in the D-League who you treat it like a true minor league system where you can call guys up and down. And, you know, it's it's slowly, slowly moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. Right. You see, you see that more nowadays where – you know, guys like a Cameron Payne has been, you know, up and down from the D League, and now he's actually playing, you know, meaningful minutes in the playoffs. Hmm. Cameron Payne, Cam Payne, 
Hey, by, by, by the way, I, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned a couple of names, Corleone Young and Lenny Cook. Who are the, when, you, when we think about the, the, the failures and the great successes, I think we know the success that are on the cover of your book. You know, uh, Kevin Durant. Um, well, Durant played a year. Well, yeah, he did. KG. Yeah, KG, Kobe, LeBron. I mean, these clearly are the great, uh, you know, the great success stories. Oh, and I meant not Kevin Durant, but Kevin um, uh, what's his name? Garnett. 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 Yeah. yeah. What are the who are the who have been the, the the big the big failures? And the the three names that really jump out to me are uh, Leon Smith and Lenny Cook and Corleone Young and you know just to go through them real quick. Lenny Cook was this New York City sensation who dominated at the sneaker camps. Who was this next big thing? He when he was in high school, he challenged Kobe to one on one and and said that he would beat Kobe. Kobe just kind of rightly laughed at him. But let me, you know, in New York, obviously everything is bigger, brighter. Right. But uh, he uh, he was the next big thing. And mm-hmm. he, uh, it, it's weird because he ended up uh, playing in the sneaker camp game, this ABCD camp against LeBron James, and basically nobody had heard of LeBron James at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, hard, it's hard to imagine. Right. Yeah. And LeBron James uh, basically took it to Lenny in that game where the the tournament was in Lenny's backyard in New York and he was expected to dominate. And LeBron ended up hitting the game-winning shot over him. Mm. And basically that was the, the beginning of Lenny's downfall and the, the beginning of LeBron's rise uh, right there with that one game. Uh, it's It's amazing to watch how their careers have just gone in opposite directions <laughs> ever since. Isn't there a doc? There's a movie or a documentary, right? The Lenny There's Cook a documentary story. on Lenny Cook, yeah, that's that's really really good. It is right. good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, Corleone Young, I mean, he was a guy who played 15 minutes for the Detroit Pistons, and that was his whole NBA career. I don't even think he could. Uh, it's probably more of a chance that you play zero minutes than exactly 15 get your 15 minutes of fame. And <laughs> you know, he wasn't. He just wasn't ready for the league, and and he any type of defense. He had a, a AAU coach who, who kind of didn't have his best interests at heart, mm. uh, who was kept promoting him to, to get his payday. Mm. And, uh, you know, once he was the thing that, that kind of went against him was that he was a second-round draft pick, so he didn't have that uh, typical NBA guarantee of first-round draft picks of being able to, to stay in the organization for at least three years. And mm. so the, the team waived him, and then – you know, it's been just about downhill ever since. What's what's he doing now? Uh, he's, he's basically just hanging out in uh, in Wichita, Kansas, uh, where he played high school ball. Mm. You know, it's weird because it's almost like like I visited Lenny in in Virginia. I visited Corleone in Wichita, and it's almost like their lives have just been suspended. You know, like they're still kind of searching for for an answer mm. and for a place in this life because the, it was almost their destiny to be NBA stars and. You know, to not have that and to see their contemporaries, guys like you know, LeBron and Kobe, et cetera, still in the league, famous beyond belief, rich beyond belief, and commercials, endorsements, et cetera, living that life that was preordained for them. I mean, that's that's tough to kind of uh, get over. I mean, you know, it, it's also on them to kind of realize it and move on with their lives. But I mean, that's it, it's just tough, and it still is tough for them. Cause, mm. They thought they were put here to play basketball. What What are some of the reasons, like, you know, those three guys in particular, but what are some of the reasons that you could point to uh, as to why they didn't make it? Well, I think one of the biggest reasons is if you look at guys like LeBron, Kobe, KG, those guys saw getting drafted as the beginning, not, not an end point or destination. It was a first step in a long journey where they needed to keep improving, keep getting better, keep committing themselves to the game. Because you, you think of where you were in high school, and your day was pretty much regimented, right? right like right. you went to classes, you went to practice, well, you went home, you did homework, you did the same again the next day over and over, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You get drafted in the NBA, you practice for a, a couple hours in the day, and then the rest of the day is yours. Mm-hmm. You have time to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. You have money probably for the first time in your life to get in trouble or to do things that you know you, you probably wouldn't do uh, otherwise. And you got to be really, really uh, committed and mature beyond your years to be able to have that type of singular focus to be able to 
say, hey, this isn't the destination. I need to keep getting better and keep improving. And these extra hours, I can spend it in the gym, not the club. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that that's a big factor between the guys who, who succeeded and a few who, who didn't. I think a guy like Corleone Young was, uh, you know, swept up by the nightlife in Detroit. Lenny Cook was in the New York City clubs before he was <laughs> out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just, it's, it's tough because I, you know, I've thought about this a lot. I don't think I would have had the foresight, and I don't want to keep making excuses. But if you're given everything on a platter when you're, when you're a teenager, you just expect that to be your life for forever. Yeah, but you know the interesting thing about that, and, and I guess this is where race or racism comes in. Um, you, you know, you look at the guys the same age as Corleone. You know, take a, a black guy his age. You know, basically, you know, you're you're worried about getting shot or getting put in jail and all this stuff, but because you can play, you know, because you now have some kind of value, you're sort of taken out of that that lineup. You're kind of taken out of it, and you're king for a day. If you're Corleone Young or Lenny Cook, or you can play along with that sort of fantasy because you have value. I mean, you know, as a you, you have value that as a young black man has flows into accrues to the advantage of some kind of power system because you can play ball. If you're just a regular black guy, regular teenager, you got to worry about getting stopped and frisk, or you're just another nameless face, you know. Um, and, and I'm as I'm listening, looking at all this kind of stuff because we talked about it a lot. Um, this whole everybody you're talking about, this one, all this whole book has has there like one white guy. I mean, I can't remember. I can't remember what there like was, there was one. Uh, what what page is that? Where is that? <laughs> he was a he was a footnote. But the funny thing, <laughs> is Robert Swift was probably like the craziest What's his name? one of all. What's his Robert name? Swift. Who? Robert right, Swift. Robert Swift. He, oh, uh, he is that Seattle? Of, uh, drug addiction. Yeah. Right. He was a uh, he was Seattle. He was probably one of the biggest uh, disappointments out there. Right. Well, hey, because right. he was also be the white, the white hope. I mean, yeah, like two two things he was supposed to be able to do. Right, more weight on his shoulder. <laughs> but it's inter- you know, going down this line of conversation, you had mentioned you also mentioned before that you thought the NBA had some sort of social responsibility. I was wondering what you, what you think that is and why. I mean, I just think that there should be a, a policy in place that looks out for the players. Maybe you know, have a committee where the guys had an NBA career, I guess, predicted, but then lost it. Just make sure they get a college education, something something along those lines, because you, you look at it, and it's almost like a, a, a maturation step is, is taken out of this equation, like a step in somebody's uh, path toward adult development. And going back to what Bill said, I mean, the average, the average black person, the average, you know, anybody at that age, instead of being lauded upon, they're learning – life skills you know they're learning how to how to deal with police they're learning how to uh, uh, provide for themselves or how to cook how to act normally socially with people where I just feel like this whole big step in life was just removed for these guys they're almost living in a fantasy world and then to get back into real life had to be jarring mm, right, right. hey John in the few minutes that we have left uh, uh, I, I'm always I know you get this too in fact, we talked about it when when you first came to the Times before. Just the process of writing a book like this, you know, I was, you know, for me, is when you first get the first galley proofs, and you really realize that it's real, that you're like you've done it, you've finished. What was the process like for you, from sort of the beginning to the middle to the end of it? What 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 was it like? Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was tough, and we talked about it a lot because, you know, writing in and of itself is is tough because it's. It's a job that's really isolating, right? It's just you up against the computer screen, and when that computer screen is blank, it's it's intimidating because you want you want everything to be perfect. You want everything to to really really be strong, and you know your mind starts playing tricks against you. Like, can you do it? The best thing to do is just to just to get writing. Anything is better than a blank page. So, I mean, I just try to clock in every day and, and clock out. And, uh, you know, that was at the time that my son was born, so that didn't help matters. But, uh, you know, it was it was fun getting through it. And, you know, the process of seeing how the book has been received has been really gratifying and really humbling. Mm. And now, see, now that's the thing, now you got one, now you got the bug. Now you got, you're working on another project, right? 
I know because it's almost like you get amnesia, right? You forget how tough it was. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so yeah, I'm working on a on a book about The Wire, an oral mm. history about the television show. Wow, mm. one of my favorite shows, or maybe <laughs> maybe my favorite show of all time. And I know that would get Jamal's attention. That's 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 <laughs> gonna be that's gonna be great. I mean, it's, it's almost like a complete uh, 360 degrees. It's not like another sports book. It's like it's you know one of the one of the greatest shows of all time. How did you choose that? Uh, you know, actually, uh, I have a good literary agent, and he brought the idea to me, and I was just like, oh, man, that's that's perfect, because, you know, it, they look like different projects, but if you look at it a little bit closer, you know, I think Boys Among Men was, hopefully, people could talk about the social implications, I think, of of what these guys went through, and, and how it is kind of applauding these guys with with money and, and attention at that early of an age. You know, the reason why I started it with Moses was because he was almost making a choice between the money and his leaving his adolescence behind. And uh, that was the choice that I wanted to present with Bucky leaving that, that money on the table. And then you look at a, you look at a show like the wire and yeah, it's great entertainment, but you know, the, the stuff that it talks about society and how institutions have basically Felt so many people and left so many people behind, and and how just inept is it is at the top to almost the bottom. I mean, yeah, I can't think of anything that has a that has had a greater, I guess, impact upon how we look at society in recent years than that television show. What do you want to accomplish? I, mean, I think this. I think this is going to be great. I mean, I think without knowing what your approach is, I think this is going to be a, a great book. What do you want to? How how you think you're going to approach it? Hey, I'm still. Honestly, I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, I think I've done about forty something hours worth of interviews so far, and wow. you know, I'm getting I'm getting great stuff. And I just uh, I'm not I'm not sure yet. You know, I'm not sure how I'm going to put it all together. I'm I'm not sure how it's going to flow. You know, the the show had a lot of real life implications where you know Carquette, a lot of people compared Mary Carcetti's arc to the arc of Martin O'Malley, who uh, had a short lived bit for president. So there's a lot of a uh, you know, and a lot of those figures that they that they wrote on are based on real people, or at least, or at least composites of of real people. Uh, a character like Omar was based on, you know, four or five real guys in real life. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting. That's, that's great. Yeah, I can't wait for that. For, I, I seriously, what, what's your? Um, you, you just left the. Uh, you just left Grantland uh, to go to. Um, well, Grantland left everybody. <laughs> but but, but uh, you're, you're going to start uh, with um, the Bleacher Report. What are you going to be doing for the Bleacher Report? A lot of the stuff I was doing at Grantland, but I'm probably going to cross over into some other sports, which I'm looking forward to. In Grantland, I did a lot of NBA long-form stories, and uh, you know I'm going to do the same at, at Bleacher, but, yeah, also looking at doing some other sports. Mm-hmm. Hockey? Uh, Silence. When we see a hockey story by me, I think uh, – I think I probably jumped the shark a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what do you? What do you? What do you? What's your take on the uh, NBA playoffs so far? It's been a, you know, it, it started off as, as pretty slow, but I think it's starting to pick up a little bit. Um, you know, I think the the Raptors Heat series is going to be a good one. I thought it was a. I can't believe Lowry hit that shot last night. It's not like they did anything in overtime, but he, <laughs> the fact that he hit that shot was pretty incredible and. You know, San Antonio, Oklahoma City is going to be good. Uh, you know, we'll see how Golden State is when, when Steph Curry comes back. I don't think Portland is going to be too much of a problem for them. But, you know, I think I think the conference finals will be really good series. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonathan, this has been tremendous, man. This is, you know, really, really great, man. I'm so proud of you, so happy for you. And uh, when you get that movie, man, call me. (laughs) 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 Throw throw, throw a brother a dime. Well, well, congratulations, Jonathan. This is, you know, the the book is Boys Among... Oh, I wanted to ask you something. Um, You know, Boys Among Men, of course, I guess it seems like it would take a Boys to Men, you know, with Bobby Brown and and that thing. It's almost like the same same concept, right, of this, that we talked about, this maturity and the hopeful maturity, right? Hopefully... You'll 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 mature, and it's. I mean, was that was that sort of your? I don't know. What, what, did boys, two men, come any have anything to do with this? N- not no. really. I mean, I know it's <laughs> really similar. Uh, some somebody on Twitter like photoshopped like the singing group onto the cover. And <laughs> I thought that was really funny, but I mean, I don't know. It was just you know the whole 
I guess, maturation process I wanted to show in the in the title. All right. Hey, my guest has been the great Jonathan Abrams. He's, his book is Boys Among Men, How the Prep to Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked a Basketball Revolution. He's now with the Bleach Report. Jonathan, thank you so much, man, and uh, continued success and good luck. Uh, thank you, guys. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Great talking to you. All right, man. Bye. That was great, Jonathan Abrams, and we will be right back to talk about the NBA playoffs and hockey, Jamal. Hockey is in the house. I don't know anything about hockey. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. We're back with Bill Roden on Sports. Bill Roden here, Jamal Murphy over there, and playoff time is here. Playoffs all across the board. Playoffs in the NBA, playoffs in hockey. Yes, playoffs in hockey. And Bill Roden on sports was there. But um, just quick takes, man. So what do you think of the playoffs so, uh, so far, Jamal? So far, so good. I mean, the first the first round was shaky. I barely, Honestly, I barely watched the, the first round playoff uh, series. But it's picking up now. Golden State seems to be... Uh, just as strong without Curry, at least for, you know they have their competition levels a little lower. Mm-hmm. But Curry will be back shortly, and I think they haven't lost, they haven't missed a step. And I feel like they're still the heavy favorite. I know you disagree with that, but well, no, it's not that I disagree. I don't want it to happen. I, right. I can't put my finger on. I know, like like producer Pat, like why? Why do you? <laughs> everybody like loves Golden State, everybody man. Like, everybody like the teddy bear, like the little. <laughs> it's like how could you not like Christmas and Santa? Seriously, man. I don't know. I guess it's, it just may be the. Journals or whatever. I'm like, are you are you hating on the light skinned guys like me? Well, like you, I don't know. I'm all, you know. Well, no. I mean, no, I mean that's. <laughs> <I'm just> well, <laughs> no, I don't know. Well, that's a whole other program. That's there. another program. Yeah, we'll get uh, on that Kobe Bryant. The Kobe uh, Bryant and brown skin. I don't know. Some people call me. I mean, I'm not. I'm like I'm, I'm red. You know, true. Sort of like you're red, red. You're red. Like red. So, yeah. See, that's a whole little thing with the black community. We have all yeah, different. A, the first time I heard red was when I was in Morgan. Right. I'm thinking you're either black or not. So, oh no 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 no. There's like there's like you know brown skin. Right. Then somebody called you a red bone. Right. Yellow. I got I got red for the first time when I was in school in North Carolina. Yeah, that was so, like a big thing being red. Yeah. yeah. You know, but uh, no, I mean, but Kobe Bryant took it to another level because he he used it almost in a disparaging way, right? He said, jokingly, ah, you, yeah, you know, you don't, don't, don't big, drive. He kind of joking. Joke. It's a big, you know. I but, grew up with that joke. So the idea, like the, the lighter you are. The tougher you're not supposed, or the, the darker, softer, the, the softer you're supposed, you're supposed to, be. to be singing R&B. <laughs> it's a song, you know, right, but I mean, song. but look at Smokey Robinson. Man. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, right. yeah, but it's a very interesting discussion within our community. Right. I mean, it's really one of those discussions very few people are privy to, because right. I mean, it gets really deep, but it also has to do with the whole thing of slavery. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that's the reason why you look at black. Well, we all come to all. Shapes and sizes depend on—I mean, not shapes and sizes, but shapes and colors. Right. Depending on your 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 interaction with the with the slave master. Yeah. No. No. It's it's very deep. It is. You know, deep. it's very deep. Good hair, bad yeah, hair. Yeah. I and mean, then the close, you know, the cl- the closer you were to white, you know, more right. privileges you got. You had. Right. You didn't have to be as as rough and That's tumble right. because you were protected. I mean, because normally you were somebody's son, a right, daughter. Right, right, right. You, were in, you were in the house. <laughs> you were in, yeah. you in the house. So, yeah, that's the, see, that's the thing about sports. Kobe, I mean, it's basketball. Right. But he says something, and it goes really deep. Right, and right. nobody really dealt with it because, you know, people, I was thinking, you know, I said, you know, people, you know what, this is a book. I mean, this is. Right, right. In fact, I always wanted to talk to Kobe to get him to develop it, you know, to where yeah. was, you know, where, where that, you know, where was that coming? Anyway. Um, we got to get him in here, man. You know, I'm sure he'll develop. Yeah, it. he may have time now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has some time. Question is, do we? Yeah, um, yeah. So the, no, but back back to <laughs> basketball. Yeah, right. uh, Golden State looking good. Uh, right. OKC surprised me because I thought they were kind of a fake team throughout. They had, obviously they have two great players, um, but they hadn't. You know, even during the season, they they racked up a lot of wins, but when it came to the big game, never seemed like they could get it done. So I I feel like uh, game two. <laughs> that even though that victory was tainted somewhat, right. game two of the Spurs was they really their, by far obviously right. their biggest victory, and it showed me something where if Durant and Westbrook come to play to their potential every night, that's what can happen. If they win, you know, I know a lot of people are looking for for Kevin Durant to come to their 
city. They figure if they win, Durant will probably stay in OKC. Right. If they lose, you know, he may be in D.C. Right. Please don't come to New York, come Kevin. New York, please, man. please don't Save do us. that. Please don't do Save that, us. Kevin. You, it'll, you, it'll, what, what happened to what happened to Derek Fisher and what's happening to Phil Jackson will happen to you. Trust me. <laughs> many brave, what, many brave. Plus, so, plus, he, you know, he doesn't really like the media too much anymore. So I don't, don't come York, here. I don't know if New York is good for him. But he likes, he likes those ducats. Yeah, those Harriet Tubmans. Well, he's gonna get that regardless. Yeah, that's true. That's he's true. Get that regardless. Let, yeah, man. With a couple minutes we have left, um, hockey. We were, we were. Um, we were both at the Islanders playoffs game, yes. and you know, I mean, they they lost, but you know, hockey is they they miss calls there. They missed a lot of calls. Right. Uh, the one like you know, one guy got flattened. Right. Uh, who was Doyle? Mm-hmm. Doyle of of the uh, Tampa Bay uh, Lightning. Lightning flattened. Uh, who was the defenseman? The uh, Islanders defenseman Hickey. They, he, I believe. Yeah. I believe so. See, yeah. No, no. I was, I was, I was relying on Pat to see if it's not, yeah. if it's not the devil. Pat, it, yeah, it, Pat only, right. It's only it's the devils. Devils. Yeah. That's all. No, no Islanders. My point though is this: is that whether it's hockey, basketball, even them, th- these games, man, are getting so fast now, and right. hockey's already a fast game. Right. It is absolutely impossible for a regular officiating crew to call these games without eyes in the sky. You just cannot do it. You're just missing so you you. It is it is impossible for just a human eye to to officiate these games anymore. Yeah, I, I agree with that. There's a there's a bunch of different levels to it. To me, yes, the game's fast, but I always but I also feel like they always miss stuff. You know, it was always probably too fast for the human eye, yeah. and now we have all this technology, so now they actually have help, and it becomes more right. glaring everything they do miss. But getting back to your point, also, and it's with. I've thought about this with other sports, particularly football. We, you know, as we move on, uh, the you know, as time goes on, uh, the you know, people get bigger and faster and stronger. But we still play on the same right. size court and, exactly. and and rink and 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 field. That's right. You know, That's with right. the with faster players, but right. with now, which means there's really less space. Exactly. Yeah. No. That's that's such a great point. You know, you look at the NFL. Dimensions haven't changed probably since 1922. Right, but the but the but players, the players man, the players would be. It'd be like us taking this room, right. which is probably about I don't know eight feet. Right, eight feet. I think this room was built for the 1920s uh, human being. Yeah, yeah, and and imagine having like 22 people in here, you know, competing and just you know it's like fighting in a phone booth, and and, and people people like the bottom line. People love it. People love the violence. Mm-hmm. They love the hard hits. They love, you know, so, but but I guess the sports are in a, sort of at a crossroads because how are you going to, how are you going to officiate this? And it's almost right. the, the technology, like you said, people always miss stuff. But remember back in the day, the referees said, yeah, I missed it. Or, or, but now you have cameras. Right. So I think that um, that probably what's going to happen you know, first the 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 leagues just say, "Oh, we missed a call." But I think what's going to happen next is that we missed a call, and now we're going to do something about it. If you lost, we're we're now going to make it all right, just like with DNA. Oh, wait a minute, we put this guy in, in prison for him, twenty years. Right. Now get him out. Him, right. Yeah. No, you guys won, but you shouldn't have. So now right. we're going to do whatever. We're going to play it back. So right. you know. Well, you know that best. Is that then you go back to like tradition and fans and what do. It's really going to come down to fans want that, right? To get it absolutely right. right. Do, do they want you to be able to reverse a decision because that's what everything is based on. And if it comes gets to a point where that, that's what the fan wants, I think that's that's what will happen. But, you no, know, going back to hockey, the Islander game was great. They lost, um, but the Brooklyn atmosphere was great again. I like that. But, just but you know, I'm not a huge hockey guy, but, you know, I I'm, I'm appreciate you. When, when you're in the – in the yeah. stadium, you definitely appreciate it more. Absolutely, but I mean that's a physical, physical, oh, physical on, sport, man. man. And I'm, I was, I'm me? in the locker room looking at these guys all beat up, and I'm like, wow, you know, I mean it's the closest thing to football. It's not football quite, but it's the closest thing to football. You get they play only 16 games. They get a week between games. These hockey guys, they play like a basketball schedule. Right. They're playing every other day. I'm, I'm like, how, Plus how practicing. do they do it? Press back. Do it? It's, it's, it's to me. And I don't know. I mean, I guess there's this outrage about football, but right. come on, man, are you kidding me? Hockey, somebody hits, and I was like looking like last last night's game. They said there were 78 hits. They actually keep track of the hits, and th- just the normal stuff of being impaled in the boards, man. <laughs> and like here it is the third quarter. You're like tired, and you say, right. "Oh man." I mean, 
I don't know, but somebody called it, it's like all, a bunch of linebackers on skates. Right. You know, it's really a right. very physical game. And there's no, you know, in, in football, if you're a defensive end, something like there are points where you may be able to hide on a play or take a play off when it's going to the other side or it's clearly – in hockey, rarely will you take plays off because it's just it's just too fast. Right, you can't. And there's only five of you on, on, on the ice. Yeah, there's nowhere to run, nowhere to – it's really a grueling sport. and it's a, it's a gorgeous sport. So you'll be hearing more about that from us later as these playoffs progress. But um, I'm looking forward to round three. I'm looking forward to playoffs. Playoffs are just the best in any sport. Right. The final four was great. Especially in New York, playoffs in New York. Uh, because it's been For me, so rare. I'm, I mean, I'm from you know. I Brooklyn. know you're from Chicago, so I'm sorry. Well, no, well, the Blackhawks. <laughs> you kidding me, Shoot, man? No, Chicago, and, Chicago too. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, listen, man, it's been 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 great. I'd like to thank Jonathan Abrams uh, and uh, Jamal. You as always, producer Pat. Have to get you to an Islanders game, man. Yeah, I got to get out to Brooklyn. Well, maybe we'll see if they advance. Uh oh, then you'll oh, go. Now they have oh, to advance. right. And then no, you'll no, right. They have to get to the, <laughs> they they get get to the, the finals. Stanley Cup <laughs> finals for Pat to, to leave Jersey to come over big, for one big game. time. Wow, thanks, Pat. And, and, and thank you guys. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you all next on another edition of Bill Roden on Sports. Take care. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel and I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.